Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. I'm Ann Thompson. And Anne, I, I figured we would just be talking about these strikes indefinitely, but we actually get sort of a break this week, at least for a little bit, because Barbenheimer has arrived, the first great pop culture moment of the year that non-industry people seem to be aware of, as far as I can tell, because everybody's talking about these two movies, quote unquote, competing at the box office. We know Barbie's going to win that out, but it's a hilarious showdown, especially now that we've seen the two movies. Uh, I I, I love good. the idea that that yeah. they're that they're uh, that 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 someone like Nolan and, and 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 Gerwig and all these people would just go along with the idea. Of course, it's in their interest to support each other and not look like they're going after each other. They don't want to look like they're competing, especially since Oppenheimer, the supposedly bigger, more serious, more prestigious movie is going to do less well than the popcorn entertainment. But the truth of the matter is that as brilliant and smart and, and brainy uh, as all Nolan movies are, and this one is too, Barbie is the smartest of all. Well, let, let, let's break this down because the, the whole Barbenheimer concept that's materialized was not something that was like sort of engineered by either of these people. And I'm sure it has been driving Nolan crazy for a very long time. Greta Gerwig, I don't really know. But I mean, the, the ideas in these two things are so far apart in the sense that like Barbie is unex it's sort of this, you know, 15 years ago, you wouldn't have said like, oh, we're going to have a Barbie movie that's all about the patriarchy in very explicit terms. Whereas like, Christopher Nolan making a movie about Robert Oppenheimer makes so much sense. And, and it always made, I mean, it's very much a Christopher Nolan movie. It's a movie in your head, perhaps, you know, uh, more ambitious in certain ways than some of his films in the sense that it's not trying to do something that a lot of his films has, has done. It's not as much of an enigma. It's, it's, it's a little more straightforward in that sense, but Barbie is certainly the more ambitious movie in terms of what it's doing with IP as a Hollywood product, because it's a satire that will go over the heads of a lot of audiences that think they're just seeing like a fun, fizzy Barbie. That's what's brilliant about it. So she figured out during the pandemic, she and her partner Noah Baumbach, who is very much not getting as much credit as he deserves actually for the screenplay, because they are a couple, they're married, you know, and they live together and they were, the they went to her as the director, Margot Robbie was, was, was on board for Mattel and they went to Greta Gerwig, but she and her husband, her partner did write this. And I love it. I love this sort of romantic idea of these two very smart people who love each other a lot, but they're also competitive in various ways in the industry working together on the script and making it what it is and making it as smart as it is. Now she's doing, doing all the interviews. He's on strike. He can't talk about the screenplay, but she, uh, she's on strike now, but we have plenty of stuff um, that she did that she got into the can before, before she went on strike. But the question, the real question is, is how uh, it, it, it is a Trojan horse. It makes this kind of, fun, diverting, let's go to Barbie land, plastic pink universe, very much out of, you know, one of the movies she cites is Umbrellas of Cherbourg and these musicals. You know, how did she, she actually called up uh, Peter Weir, who did the Truman Show, you know, to get information on how to make a fake universe and actually have emotion in it. And, and she pulls this extraordinary feet off where she's luring the audience in and that's what all the marketing materials are about. And then there's a pivot 
in the middle of it. And then you get the feminist, the message, the message well, that they, it's really they, about. When, when when you and I were watching this movie, I think we got the message from the very beginning because the opening voiceover says something about like when the Barbie dolls were made. Helen and, Mirren. Yeah, Helen Mirren in this voiceover is basically saying, and then like, you know, all feminist issues were resolved and we lived in this equal society. So it's it's got this sort of satiric, ironic tone to it very early on, you know, that line. Yeah, but you don't realize what the Ken part of it is until halfway through. It's when they go to the real world that Ken's eyes, he's the the men in the world are very, very emasculated. They and every literally and figuratively and they have they don't even have places to live, you know, and and even, you know, and, and Ryan Gosling, you know, avoided doing the movie for a long time because he remembered seeing his daughter's Barbie buried under a rotting lemon in the garden, you know. So so he's he's um he, he came around. He 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 could get nominated for this for real. He could win. It, it's it's a brilliant performance. Don't you well, think? Yeah, that was sort of it's fascinating. I mean, that that ultimately what you're saying is like the movie is as much about masculinity as that's it what is it's about, it's about both. And about and it starts out being this sort of ah, women, women, yeah, they run this world. It gets into the real world. Yeah, it's interesting that that you go to into to his awards potential over the Margot Robbie question. Because She'll get he, in there, but he is the surprise. He's the one who just he inhabits. Well, he really inhabits Ken in a, and well, makes you feel for him. Well, to to a degree, I, I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous situation overall. And I also felt at times like it was it's a bit of a heavy handed movie and it, at times. I mean, you do feel like the didacticism of it in a fun way. I embrace that. It's this Trojan horse element, as you say. But I but I think what's cool about his performance is that it's a consolidation of all the stuff he's done. It's like one part drive and one part Lars and the real girl or whatever. So even though he's like sort of like this somewhat older for the part, that's what some people were saying, you know, would you really cast an actor in his 40s to play a character like that? It does feel like it stands on his screen presence in a way that makes he's a movie star. It stands yeah, on his, I and do. so is Margot Robbie there. The fact that she's so, she's so perfectly cast for this, but she too brings a kind of uh, humanity to it. That's what Greta brings. That's what she was able to do with this. I would is, love to is see a, get uh, underneath the plastic and, and let us feel for, for these doll characters. Yeah, and there is, not to spoil it, but the ending of the movie is interesting in that sense, because even though it does, you get really enmeshed in the Ken storyline for a while, but when it finally comes back to the Barbie storyline, and it's like, well, how do you end this in a meaningful way? It does find, I think, a a pretty gratifying conclusion. It's pretty abstract and ambitious. So it did surprise me in ways, even though so much of the marketing gives away the first, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of this movie. That's right. They're they're focused on. Uh, and, and now that I've seen the movie, I figured out, you know, that Warner Brothers was definitely uh, and I think Universal over on the Oppenheimer side, too. They're both they're It's so weird that they're on the same day, but they're doing the same thing. They're selling their movies without letting without selling them as smart movies. They're trying to sell them to the mainstream. They avoided festivals. They didn't want the smart press to cover them at the beginning. 
they've saved that for closer to release. They want mainstream audiences to actually want to go see this and not be turned these both of these movies and not be turned off by the smart yeah. content. Well, do, do you think that's realistic? Because when I watched it, I, I figured, yeah, OK, great. Hundred million dollar opening for Barbie. But it's already got the Fox News loonies like complaining about, you know, how woke it is and, and whatever. Like the cinema score might not be great. The same Word way of mouth on it is going to be how fun it is. I'm, I'm not worried about Barbie and I'm not I don't know how it'll play in some red states. You, you got a point on that. But it's I, I think in the in the overall big cities everywhere around the country, it's going to be fine. And part of it is that they're going to go along for the ride. They're going to be lured in and then they're going to go, oh, I mean, I'd like to think that this movie would have an, a chance of actually having people open their eyes a little bit. You well, know, it's, it's the actual transition that Barbie herself and these characters go through in the movie. Maybe some viewers are will be surprised. It's like if you had like four you know, more conservative minded people go see this movie like one of them has their eye open, but is afraid to tell their friends who are all like pissed off about it. And then, you know, maybe they're set on some journey. So I'm all yeah, about I think people are going to be entertained, you know, oh. even despite despite the message. Why don't we touch quickly on the Oscar odds for Barbie? Because it isn't you alluded to it, you know, this idea that, OK, Ryan Gosling is best supporting actor and could win. That's really interesting. But if the movie does really well, and certainly you could see on the craft side, there's a lot to go on production. It's stronger on the craft side, but it's also one of the best screenplays of the year. So that's where Greta Gerwig has been nominated. Before, um, you know, she she's she's and one so of those people who keeps that. getting nominated, you know, and 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 so and 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 so is Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know, they're both overdue. But yeah, but here's well, here's the thing. She <laughs> I think it's a great screenplay. So I would put it there. I would put her and him both in the directing. Well, it's interesting. Remember uh, Little Women and Marriage Story, they were both nominated in two different categories the same year. So this brings them together. And it's, it'd be an interesting question once we get into the real campaign mode, uh, you know, are they more powerful as a couple promoting their screenplay as opposed to... It's a know, good thing she directed it. That makes it better. Well, he yeah, wanted it, to direct it and she they, they went with her. He realized what a good script it was. The reason it's such a good movie is that the script is... I mean, she's an incredible director. She was a perfect director for this, but but... I, it could, he would he wouldn't have been able to do what she did. I honestly don't think so. But the script is what it is. Well, it's an inversion of Francis Ha, their first collaboration, which is very much a Noah Baumbach movie that she wrote. You know, from that's right. Her experiences and stuff. In this case, of course, it, it her style makes more sense. But you know, he wrote part of Madagascar three. You know, like he's got a whole side hustle going on. He knows how to do that stuff. He does. He does. Some of the funny stuff. I mean, it'd be interesting to pick apart whose voice we're hearing when. I'm sure he found some of those good one-liners. There's one funny moment in that movie where they cut away to a bunch of the Kens and they're like, one of them's like, I'm thinking of a bird and none of them can guess what the bird is. That felt very Noah Baumbach to me. Like a total I'm sure. I'm sure that no, it's so witty. It, I mean, I want to see it again because it's very dense also. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, the details, the references, the you and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, the movie references, the the style references, the, you know, starting off with 2001. It was funny. I was in a screening with a lot of press. Now, you would think most of the press would know uh, what the reference was. You could tell that half of them were laughing. 
Hmm. And the other, maybe the younger ones weren't. Is 2001 that's like terrifying. a de rigueur thing that everybody has to see at this point? You're talking about a movie that's like filled with with all kinds of de- dense reference points. But in, in terms of density, Oppenheimer is a whole other level because this is a movie that is dense in terms of, I don't want to use the word as, as a pejorative. I, I quite liked it. But in terms of what it's doing and what it's asking of the audience, you know, it is not you know, Dunkirk. It's not a war movie. It's a character study. Well, uh, it's building up to a big thing. It's building up to an explosion of the first atom bomb. So that creates... And it's a three-hour movie. It creates an enormous uh, amount of tension as you head for the big thing. So that carries it. That carries the first two hours, as you say. And then you have, then there's these, it's a, there's, everybody's writing about the structure of the screenplay and the different sections um but the section that has to do with robert downey jr i actually question how much time they spent on that one uh strass the guy who actually tries to do him in and and does go after him yeah the, the black and white passages in some ways are the most confusing in the sense that that character is obviously lesser known and also not as interesting in terms of his conundrums, you know, Oppenheimer's conundrum, his, his moral conflict over this is the core of the movie. So, do so you- there's a courtroom ish kind of uh, there, are couple, there are a couple of different courtroom situ- situations where you learn. It's a way of expo- the structure of the screenplay is very expository and gives you all these different that then there's the first person color part where we're following Oppenheimer heading toward the bomb. That is the most successful thing in, in the film. The, the women are a little underwritten. Well, Emma. I one woman who saw it and felt like the movie, their read on it was the movie is actually really about the women who were sort of the casualties of Oppenheimer's obsessiveness. His wife played. Well, he is cast as a womanizer. He is not portrayed well in terms of his relationships to women. But the movie is set up in such a way that the women are defined by their relationship to him. Therefore, they have their they do not have their own characters they don't have their own uh personalities they the the two of them are played the wife is played by uh Emily Blunt who does a great job given what she has and um the mistress if you like the the girlfriend who precedes the wife who he gets with gets together with on more than one occasion um is Florence Pugh who's of course fantastic and and she's designed to be a sort of sex object really well it's it's it- I had watched this documentary on Peacock that was clearly produced to kind of like drum up buzz for the movie because Christopher Nolan's in it called To End All Wars, like right before I saw the film. So the the kind of straight biographical story was fresh in my head. And, and the story of his lover is fascinating because she predated his marriage and she did die under mysterious circumstances. That's not a spoiler. Um, and she was a member of the Communist Party, which ended up being a huge issue for him. So, you know, everything about her uh, is sort of intertwined in these larger problems for Oppenheimer. So I kind of understand her marginalization in the movie in the sense that, you know, he marginalized her in a way. That's and true. Her role in his story was 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 this. He right? marginalized the women in his life. Yeah, exactly. It felt accurate to me to, to do both it of them. Way. And it, it didn't bother me in that sense. Uh, I did feel like it's a very busy film. Like you have a lot of different characters. Uh, but he gave so movie. much time to Strauss. And yeah. so I can just see what's going to happen is that Robert Downey Jr. is going to get nominated 
because it, he did he delivers something that he has ne- he's never done before. It's very good. But that's partly because they gave him that birth. They gave him all that time. Right. As opposed to, say, Benny Safdie is one of the scientists. He's or- fantastic, but it's a, it's exactly. sort of a one-note performance also. Yeah. Well, not, he doesn't have a lot of scene time. No, right? I no. played Albert Einstein. I mean, it, it's like a lot of these people are sort of crowded out. All right. So let's call it like it is what Nolan does, which is sort of interesting. I have to tell you that I almost wanted to see the indie version of this. This is not this is not a brainy indie movie. This is a big mainstream Hollywood movie with big movie stars in almost every role. It's like unbelievable how many roles are cast with known actors. And there's one piece of stunt casting that I object to strenuously i gasped when i got to truman who's played by gary oldman yeah that's it's no secret um it didn't bother me so much i mean that's an important scene but uh i bothered i I think it 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 takes you out of the movie you go oh that's gary oldman that is not how it should be You, you know he would have been better off with a character actor Maybe, maybe you're right. I mean, I think beyond the the indie, the way you say indie movie, you know, without stars, I think beyond that, what, what what that points to is that this is not really a spectacle beyond the Trinity test itself. So much of the movie, it's it's notable that Paul Schrader was the one getting quoted because he went on Facebook and said it's the most important movie of the of the century or something like that. It's like his movies where you have this one man wrecked by guilt and you're kind of in his head the whole time it's first yeah, that makes sense Schreier would relate to this it's like those <laughs> movies it's like an extension it's almost like he made it or something it just has a, you know well also nolan has you know all his films have the, the interstellar is very similar you know in many ways to this by the way the best woman he ever wrote was jessica chastain but it was written for a man <laughs> interesting yeah i forgot about that I mean, it's it's speaking of Interstellar, I, I, I saw I did not see this movie on IMAX. I saw it at the um, at a hotel in, in, in Midtown because uh, that was the screen that made sense with my schedule. And it was a lot of physicists and it was a, a panel discussion with Nolan and Kip Thorne, who's like his go to physicist guy and a bunch of other scientists. He's been working with him for a f- a f- on yeah. f- several films. Yeah. And I mean, Kip Thorne on Interstellar was like the guy who helped him understand black holes and stuff like that. And I, and that was just like fascinating to me because it's like it didn't it didn't make the case for this movie as like a commercial summer movie at all. But it did show you that he plays really well to the science crowd. Like they were really excited about the movie, not because of the hard science of the explosion. Like that's a no brainer. It was more like that he's getting into this idea that scientists control the fate of humanity. And that's a really delicate subject. They don't always get to talk about because they're thought of as just, you know, people in lab coats, you know, doing equations or whatever. So that's sort of the groundswell of support for the movie. And I'll be curious to see as the season continues, you know, if the actors can't, promote it because of the strike this you know he can oh, they're gonna go people. back to the to the scientists i don't think that's exactly. gonna sell it for the uh for the red for the red uh city market Maybe now, um, it'll i hope it does well i think it's a brilliant movie it's fun it, you say that it i i started as i said before uh, we'll see how this gets edited i started out on i imax 70 millimeter and then it uh broke down and we ended up on the dcp imax uh, but it's a beautiful movie it's it's the the los alamos uh, vistas uh 
all of it, e- even the close-ups on Robert Downey Jr. I mean, everything is beautifully wrought. Uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema does an extraordinary job. Yeah, and he shot movie. it on location with you know scientists as extras and stuff like that. So they, so it is, despite all the movie stars, as you mentioned, I mean, it, there is like a sense that it's grounded in in some sort of like historical reality. We keep not talking about Killian Murphy. And it's interesting. I was watching, I was watching a, um, you know, one of those interviews, one of those TV interviews, and it was Killian Murphy and uh, Robert Downey Jr. And the uh, questioner just kept going back to, to Robert Downey Jr. A, because he's been doing these interviews for a long time and he knows how to do them. Yeah. And B, because Murphy is so uptight and laconic and doesn't say anything. And he hasn't become a movie star. He doesn't know how to play the game. And I I wonder, um, he gives an extraordinary performance, but I never hear anyone talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think you're right. It's like it's it's not a showy performance. You're not no. gonna watch him, you know, very shut down, sobbing, you know, all of those lies, like the the you know, Liam Neeson Schindler's list scene with all the medals, like this medal could have saved five Jews or whatever. That always drove me nuts. Like there's no like showboating, which is why it's a good performance, but also a harder sell. Like you really do have to get the Killian Murphy story out there and get him in front of well, I don't think they've done it so far. I might go look and see what they what interviews are out there, but um I I can just see where it's gonna go. I, well, I can... so that so that raises some interesting questions. I mean, both of these movies, no, Nolan is has been, as you say, like Greta Gerwig, nominated for Oscars before. He was underappreciated by the Academy for a while, but this one, this could be his time. I actually think this could be his time. If it doesn't bottom bottom out at the box office, that's the thing. It needs to do well. I'm not worried about Barbie. Bar- Barbie Barbie needs to be elevated by but by yeah. smart writing and I think it has been. I don't I don't think anybody thinks it's a um, a bimbo movie. I think everyone recognizes gives it cred, you know, for its smarts now. But um it, it it'll it, in a funny way Barbie is is a stronger contender because it'll at least be a box office hit. I don't know how far Oppenheimer will go in that direction. They're both very expensive. Yeah, I wonder about like the whole idea of dating Oppenheimer as they did because the aura of it as a summer movie is is pretty misleading at least to me. I mean, I don't know when a better time They what they did not want to do the fall festival cred route. They clearly avoided it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it would have been really interesting to see this movie at like Telluride in the Chuck Jones or something or like that. Or to do the IMAX premiere at TIFF even. Yeah, yeah you know? I'm not I'm not sure why that was not, uh, not advisable. I know why. They didn't want to have the smart movie imprimatur on it. They wanted to stay. They're trying to stay away from it. Yeah, but it is a smart movie. But, and but it's think- Chris Nolan. What are you going to do? Yeah. It's like it's like he is what he is. It's like, but but the funny thing is from like the cultural conversation standpoint, like this is a movie that actually does reach across the aisle. Like I don't see the like Fox News types being upset about it or something like it. It could have wider appeal over time. It's just not something that lights up the box office. And once the fall season comes along, it's just going to be so busy with other stuff. So how do you keep it, you know, elevated? I think that's why they went for for the summer and um 
and they ended up going on the same date. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I'm I'm really uh, I liked both of them. I I really enjoyed both of them, and I they're both so dense and so detailed and so complex that I would go back and watch each of them again. So all of this ties into what's around the corner, which is as we're recording, we know that there is on Monday scheduled a big uh, TIFF uh, announcement of galas, which has been pushed back which was supposed to be this week and now it's on Monday and then Venice is coming and we don't know still how anybody is, is going to respond to the strike in the sense of, you know, are there actors who are going to get SAG waivers for non-studio affiliated work? Are films that actors who are, you know, like a big Netflix movie or, or another studio movie, you know, if the actors can't promote them, are they still going to hold those festival slots? And if I so- know. So uh, TIFF is the one that's the most vulnerable because they have junkets there. They launch the movies into the season there. Understood is the presence of a red star, red carpet star and, and you know, hotel rooms, you know, with with press. So that is a big question mark. Um, some people may hope that the that the, the the strikes will be resolved by then. Sarandos is now, you know, in the, in the absence of Zaslav and Iger, uh, who cannot uh, be peacemakers at this stage, uh, Sarandos, who's, who's actually the head of, of Netflix, which is the most um, impervious to the strikes, but it got hit by Wall Street today. It got hit even after it gained subscribers. And the Netflix situation is also really interesting because supposedly they have so much stuff, at least that's what they're sort of implying that they have they have a lot of time. They're not going to feel the effects of the strike in the immediate future. No, but- this is what we all think. We all think that Netflix is better able to sustain the strike than any other entity, except maybe Amazon and and uh, Apple, which also have huge t- amounts of money and aren't going to be hit, you know, financially so much. It. If if Netflix, I, I can see if Netflix's stock, they were the first ones to have an earnings report in the post-strike era. If their stock is is going down from that, imagine what the other companies, they're going to be much worse. Yes. That's the point. Storm clouds are gathering in that respect. And, uh, and every day, somebody else in the industry, a filmmaker or somebody, you know, asks me, and I'm sure you're getting these requests too, like, so how much longer do you think this is going to go on for? And it's like really interesting because there's just no template for answering that question. Like no, this is an unprecedented situation. No, and people are like, people. who's going to be the mediator? Who's going to be the peacekeeper? And somebody said it should be Sarandos. And sure. I don't yeah. know. But but the <laughs> but the other um, the other issue is how. Um, the waivers now that they've given them to a bunch of independent films, including some films from A24, you know, people who are not signatories to to the AMPTP, the, so they they have to fulfill the uh, terms of the agreement as proposed by the SAG-AFTRA. The, the to go to the festivals, a lot of the independents need a waiver for promotion, also, and that's the next step. They're yes. waiting for so, that. So yeah, so to be continued next week. I guess we'll know on some level where things are at because TIFF certainly doesn't want to make an announcement on Monday of movies that are going to be pulled from the festival. So they're going to try to project some real confidence about that. Yeah, but they went and made a big announcement about Adam McGoyan's new movie. They are so loyal to they this. They obviously had it locked Woe in. Begone, but- Canadian filmmaker. I'm sorry. Yeah. He hasn't made a good movie in a long time. Oh, we'll see. You never know. I mean, he's an interesting guy in any case. So. 
I've yeah. interviewed him. He, yeah. he has made some very good movies. They just were a while ago. Has been a while. I'll, I'll give you that. All right. Well, and till next week, let's see how these things play out. Okie dokie. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.